Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Anne Hickey. Anne is the CEO at East Sussex Credit Union, a not-for-profit savings and loans cooperative which has been trading since August 2000. Um, Anne, a very warm welcome to you and thank you for joining us on the show today. Hello. Hi Anne, pleasure having you with us. Now I think we should start by addressing the elephant in the room and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast in mid-June 2021 and so even though we're slowly starting to see social restrictions being removed, we are still somewhat within the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic aren't we and we have been for the best part of the last 14 months. So how has all of this affected you and your business over that previous year first and foremost? Um, yes, I mean, we've had um, massive changes uh, since March last year. We closed our office very quickly. Um, we had to move all our staff uh, to working at home. Um, we had to look after our membership and our savers and borrowers, make sure that they felt secure that we were still in existence, even though we weren't open to the public. Um, and to a certain extent, we're still in that situation. We are doing... Um, most of our work from home and uh, we've increased our sort of digital offer so that people don't need to actually walk through our doors. Um, we've seen our membership grow um, reasonably well over that period and our savings have increased um, by 20% and we were expecting about 12% increase. Um, I think that seems to be the pattern across um, lots of savings accounts is that people are Manage, have been managing to save and putting money away, which is a good thing. Um, our lending, uh, so 76% of our income comes from loan interest, and our lending has dropped through the floor, as has lots of other uh, lenders. It would seem uh, people aren't needing to borrow because they're not spending money. I think that um, because of uncertainty with jobs and the economy, people are less confident in borrowing, which is a good thing. Um, there's no point borrowing unless you're sure you can repay the loan. So that, that has been um, a big hit for us um, because we rely on lending for most of our income. Um, we've been delivering, we do a lot of social missions. So we're like a community bank. We work with partners um, to try and improve the financial education inclusion of people in East Sussex and Brighton and Hove. Um, we've had to stop visits. To local employers, so like NHS workers who might say via their payroll, uh, we can't go into those offices anymore. And we we used to do activities and help points, so we'd be, um, you know, in local community um, venues there to help people um, with their credit union accounts and with information. So we can't do that at the, at the moment, um, or do any kind of events or road shows. So. We've moved some of our kind of financial budgeting, money management tools online. So we've kind of tried to adapt to get that, you know, 
get that service out to people um, in a different way. Um, in terms of staff, yes, we, I mean, we had to move all our staff, quite a small team, about 10 of us, um, to working at home, providing equipment. We set up a WhatsApp group, um, having lots of team meetings to try and support people um, through this massive change, really, to working in isolation rather than in a team. Um, so we, we've, we've kind of had a lot of work around supporting um, our staff. Some of our volunteers, we work a lot with volunteers. We have to let them go because we haven't been able to work in the office. But we've managed to keep a few um, trusty, experienced volunteers on, um, which is great. Um, and we were working towards sort of a, you know, more, a better digital offer anyway. So this has kind of accelerated uh, the work that we've done. So we've, you know, during this time, we've built an online membership loan and sort of um, management, you know, people can manage their accounts all online now. Um, so they don't need to be coming into the office um, as much as perhaps they were before. Yes, I certainly see where you're coming from, from that point of view, uh, man. It's, um, it's been a very sort of challenging time adapting to the, uh, the COVID situation and amending working practices, hasn't it? And you talked an awful lot about their um, services going remote within your business, including your own workforce starting to work flexibly. Um, do you think that this is perhaps going to be the status quo now and that even though it's come about out of necessity during the COVID period, the benefits that working from home brings to the work-life balance could mean that it is here to stay? Um, yes, I mean, I think that looking at, you know, depending on how long social distancing goes on for, um, if we have to continue with some sort of social distancing for the foreseeable future, we can't have all our staff in all at the same time. We have to have a kind of blended approach to, as they call it, to, you know, part working at home and part working um, in the office. And I think there are some advantages to that because um, for me personally, I found that I work much more, um, you know, productively at home uh, without the interruptions of other people. But then also it is good to work as part of a team. You know, you get the sort of, the, the, you get the kind of the team cues that you wouldn't normally get if you were just on a WhatsApp call or, um, you know, a video call. So I think blended working is, is the way forward. I think that digital services was coming anyway, not just for us, but across mm. the board. And um, I think this has kind of accelerated that, that process. I think that's very right. I think we will see technology playing more and more of a role in our day-to-day working lives. And as you say, I suppose with that transition, there has to be a change in approach from leaders, doesn't there? Because I suppose leading teams from within an office space where everybody's there working together compared to working with people scattered across the country, I suppose it can be a little bit more challenging in a way, can't it? Is that something that maybe you've seen over the last 14 months? Yeah, I mean, we we were planning for having to do this from about January, we could kind of see the writing on the wall that we were going to have to move to remote working. So um, basically, we tried to ensure that we had really very regular direct communication with all the staff. So we set up, there's a staff WhatsApp group, there's a manager's WhatsApp group, there's weekly t- 
team meetings and managers week uh, meetings. We also had like on a Friday, we would have like a stand down um, meeting on a Friday afternoon where we might do a kind of a, a quiz or games or something just, you know, to kind of foster the team spirit, you know, deal with the potential boredom of being completely locked in and not being able to, you know, be sociable, um, you know, just to keep spirits up really. So, um, yes, I think, and some people work better at home on their own than others. So it's, it's trying to judge that and, and work, work with that and trying to keep people productive and motivated um, during you know, this very changeable time. It is a very difficult time and there are a lot of issues around mental health and well-being certainly that have been amplified by the pandemic and for you personally sort of managing that amongst your own workforce how have you found that over the previous year because I can imagine particularly in the early days of the pandemic there may well have been one or two anxious faces. Mm. I mean at the beginning I think nobody really knew what to expect this virus um, we didn't know how deadly it was and whether people were going to be dropping dead all over the place um, I mean kind of I mean it's been unfortunate but luckily it's it's not as deadly as perhaps it could have been even though it was for some um, and we know that now so I think there was a lot of fear at the beginning um, and a kind of a rush to try and make sure everyone was kept safe and um, you know away from everyone 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 else. Um, so that was quite difficult because I think none of us knew how dangerous this virus was going to be. Um, so I think now that we know a little bit more about it, and we know we know that older people are more affected than younger people, and, and you know, if there's a vaccine rollout, it's it's less of a worry. Um, so you know, I think things have changed during the course of the last 14 months in terms of how 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 worried you can be about this and how it's affected how you deal with your staff and how you manage yourself, really. Um, I actually quite enjoy working at home and having worked in an open plan office, I can't imagine how I ever got much work done in an open plan office before. So, you know, it's good to be able to concentrate and then it's good to be able to see team members once or twice a week, um, you know, when we go in and have some time together. And you've raised a really important point there about sort of having a bit of time away for yourself as well, because at the Leaders' Council over the course of the last sort of few months, we've been speaking an awful lot about the impacts of stress and burnout on business leaders themselves. And I suppose that can quite easily come about when you're sort of sucked into sort of crisis mode and making sure that you're looking after everybody else, putting mechanisms in place. And sometimes maybe you can forget to sort of take a step back and recharge the batteries when you need to as well. And having that work-life balance as a business leader is also important, I find, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm lucky that I have um, you know, a comfortable space to work in and I have some outside space, um, which has been a godsend, I guess. Uh, when you're working at home, I mean, it was quite stressful at the beginning because um, when we went into lockdown, it was the beginning of the financial year, and I was concerned about, you know, how would our credit union survive um, this year um, if everyone stopped borrowing and saving, if they withdrew their savings and what have you. 
um, so like I said, our main source of income is from lending, um, and that just basically the borrowing just stopped. Um, that was a worry. Um, how we were going to get through financially get through the year. Uh, we were very lucky with grant funding this year. Um, lots of funders stepped up because of the COVID crisis, including some of our key local authorities um, to help fund us through this year um, because they recognise it's a difficult year and I think they recognise the value of having a thriving credit union in their local community. Um, so getting some funding um, also kind of helped relieve the pressure a little bit, I think. Um, so we know that we've had a bad year. We're hoping that this will get better. It's still a little bit unknown, isn't it? Mm. We're waiting for an announcement from the government about opening up the economy. Um, you know, as a lender, um, until the economy is fully open, um, we don't see that people will be in a position to borrow um, or possibly save as well, And you know, as they were. It's difficult, isn't it? Um, the government isn't necessarily in the best position to provide certainty per se. But I think what we have learned from this pandemic, haven't we, is that communication can certainly be a lot better so that where there are delays to reopening the economy, where there are restrictions being reintroduced, it's important for businesses to know more in advance what that plan is and they can therefore plan their way around such restrictions. It's going to be really, really important, particularly perhaps as we enter the next winter period, isn't it? If there is any um, sort of hint of restrictions perhaps having to come back. Yes, I think, you know, planning is is everything really when you're you're running a small business, which, which this is, um, albeit a community bank. Um, we also have the added complication of sharing uh, a, an office area, so a, re- a shared reception area and um, toilet and kitchen with the local citizens' advice and a money advice agency. Um, so we have to work with them to be able to plan to open up to the public and they're not really in a position to do that at this point for various reasons. Um, so... Yeah, I think I think we're planning not to be open for a while to the public because we can't see the end of this roadmap coming terribly quickly. And then mm. by the time you get potentially get to the end of this, um, then we've got we're back into the winter season and possible flu season, and you know who knows what that will bring as well. Mm, indeed who knows and we don't have a crystal ball and we can't really predict the future but I suppose in an ideal world and just before we do wrap things up because I am conscious that we're starting to run short of time if we could maybe sort of forecast the next 12 months where is it that you'd really like your business East Sussex Credit Union to be this time next year as hopefully we do have the ability to leave the pandemic behind yeah so I mean I think uh, we, we are planning to increase our digital offer further. So we're looking at secure messaging and web chat so that people can just communicate with us on their phones, wherever they are, uh, make it as easy as possible for them. Um, we'd like to be able to see our members face-to-face. That might be an appointment basis only, essentially. Um, we'll have to see how things open up. We want to be doing events, um, going to um, our local payroll employers and speaking to staff there about benefits of saving through their payroll. Um, I think we'll 
year with the blended working arrangement was uh, working partly at home and partly in the office just because of the space. Um, I'd like to, as well as sort of, sort of mixing with the digital offer, I want to kind of build better relationships with our members so that we are managing to talk to people and so that people understand what we are. We're a community bank. You know, we serve our community and why people should come to us for their services. Um, we're, we're working towards being financially stable now. COVID has knocked this a bit. Um, I would hope that we'd be back on track in 12 months' time. I mean, it would be good to get some funding from the government for credit unions. The Scottish and Welsh governments have had funding directly from for credit unions to help them through COVID, and um, the credit union movement in England hasn't. Um, and it would be good to see that funding come through. Um, if they're going to, I, I, I don't think that's going to happen, but um, that might be what credit unions need. Um, a lot of a lot of credit unions, because we work, we kind of work on a knife edge, really. Mm. We're kind of lending to people who perhaps other lenders won't lend to at a lower rate of interest, so to make it affordable. But, you know, it's possible that some of those people won't repay, so there's a risk there. Um, so, you know, we're doing a lot to improve the financial resilience of our local communities um, and sometimes we need a bit of help on the way to do that because it's not um, a profitable model if you know what I mean so when something like COVID comes along it knocks us um, a bit so um, we might need some more funding to get us uh, to where we want to be in the next 12 months it's going to be interesting times and I certainly hope that you are mm. given the resources needed to thrive in quite an uncertain environment and we keep our fingers crossed of course that social restrictions are lifted sooner rather than later and sure. just given as well the level of uncertainty that there is about the future I think that once we start to get a clearer idea of what the recovery is going to look like it would be really beneficial to welcome you back onto the program with us and just see where we are at that point because it's been a real eye-opener for me and I'm sure the listeners share that sentiment having you on the show today to talk about how credit unions have been faring during this time. Sure, that'd be great. It would be my pleasure welcoming you onto the show in future, Anne. I've really enjoyed having you today and thanks again for your time in joining us. And most importantly, since we're not quite out of this yet, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. Thank you. And I would also extend that to all of our listeners tuning in today. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. Better days are coming, but we just need to be patient. Um, It was a pleasure for me today to welcome Anne Hickey of the East Sussex Credit Union onto the programme today. And coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by our incumbent chairman and former education secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be offering his take on the goings on of the last four months and his hopes for the weeks ahead. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh shutdown. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not Uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work and those elements are true of all leaders ideas the ability to build a team to have confidence in that team uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice sometimes at the most difficult times and you know the leaders council those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, 
have confidence and yes listen to those who know more about business than I ever will thank you Lord Blunkett thank you this has been the Leaders Council podcast thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us I've been your host Scott Challoner until next time goodbye thank you for listening to our podcast The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.